Hope you're not planning on making some other plea when you stand before God. Hopefully, your plea is, look, it's enough that Jesus died, that he died for me. We know that our entrance into heaven is not based upon works of righteousness. It's not based upon attaining a certain spirituality. It's based upon the work of Jesus that we receive by faith. We simply believe. It's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to grasp in our natural state. We don't understand why God would show us grace. And when everything around us, around us tells us that we ought to be something, we ought to reach a goal, we ought to realize our potential, whatever it is, we know that ultimately before God, we have done nothing to earn his favor. Only Christ has done it. And so we rejoice in this. What makes us unique, Christians, is what makes us unique in the world. We've been testifying to this saving grace through faith throughout the book of Jeremiah. And now we have come to the conclusion. I thought I'd get an amen. Let's try again. We have come to the conclusion. Uh, there you go. Somebody said amen for the first time, and you're like, oh, that felt kind of good. <laughs> no, we've been walking through this for some time now, a collective, about a year and a half. We took a, a break for songs. We took a break for a little series in the springtime about our mission to make disciples. But other than that, for uh, probably close to 20, 21 months uh, outside of those studies, we've been in the book of Jeremiah, and I'm glad to be wrapping it up today. Honestly, I haven't been looking at our meal today as a Thanksgiving meal. It's a finished Jeremiah meal for me. So uh, let's celebrate by eating together lunch. I'm going to be reading as we go today. Uh, thankfully, it's not 100 verses this week. So um, we're going to read as we go. So I want to open up with a word of prayer Father, we once again ask for your help, the Holy Spirit's help, really, in enlightening the text of Scripture for us today. Help us to know what you intend to say to us today as we, in many ways, review this event of the exile. Help us to, um, God, be approved by faith. Help us to know Jesus, to worship him, to be transformed into his likeness having encountered him in the word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jeremiah 52 is a good, uh, it's a good way to wrap up the book. Uh, it's, it's kind of out of place. If you just read through, you know that this event has already happened, but it's a, it's a way that uh, Jeremiah and Baruch, the people contributing to basically the preservation of the book of Jeremiah, it's a good way to uh, summarize the main event, why he's writing. And much like we wrap up gifts for a birthday or for Christmas and we tie a little bow on it, some are better, uh, better at that than others, I know. You don't want me to wrap your gift. You don't want me to tie a bow. It's going to be terrible. Some people have that gift, right? They wrap it up well. I think Jeremiah wraps up well with this chapter, which is sort of a review chapter. 
We don't want to miss the fact, we don't want to miss the fact, as he recounts the exile, the event of exile in this chapter, we don't want to miss the fact that the whole preaching ministry of Jeremiah was validated by this one event. Everything that he said was proven to be truly the word of God because it came true. You know what happened to false prophets in the Old Testament? If they prophesied something that didn't come true, they were stoned to death. They wanted to do that to Jeremiah just because they didn't like what he was saying. But as time bore it out, he proved he was the one faithfully preaching the word of God. I wonder if we put that kind of emphasis on preaching the word of God and the prophetic gift today, would we have so many false teachers? We don't want to miss the fact that he was validated, his message was validated. And as it was validated, and as we've learned, it wasn't like Jeremiah got to this point and said, all right, now you're in exile. I told you so. Let me go do my thing. No. All along the way, you know that Jeremiah has been the weeping prophet. He's been the one that, even though he was preaching the message, the hard message of God's discipline of his people, all the while he's doing it through tears. All the while he's bearing the burden of the weight of the people that he loved, the people he devoted his life to. He couldn't have a family, you remember. God said, you don't get a family because this is going to be your job. I want you to be able to focus on this work. He constantly bore the grief as he wept for this people, this people that he loved, this people that God loved. It's a question, the question we continually ask, why exile? Why exile? Why discipline? It's because God is not satisfied with producing a half-holy people. God is not satisfied producing a partially committed nation. And though he is patient, he won't stand for any measure of rebellion in the long run. See, y'all know this. Believer, you've been walking with Jesus for long enough to know that that season you tried to, to run from God, to try to neglect the holiness that he called you to, it came to an end because you encountered the disciplining hand of God. And if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. You'd be like the many who fell away along the way. The many who abandoned the covenant that God made with them, the covenant that they never really believed. Why discipline? Because he loves us. As we read from Hebrews just moments ago, it's the proof that we belong to him. He sees the way of the world creeping in among his people. He sees worship diminish. And all this was happening in the history of Israel in Judah. We got the southern kingdom, you remember. And for roughly 250 years, they did not even know about the law of God. It was just forgotten. And then Josiah recovers the law of God. And, and we see this sort of little reformation start to happen. And things look really good on the outside. But their hearts were never really changed. 
And they were still set on the path of idolatry and false worship. And Jeremiah came on the scene and he was preaching in the midst of everything being good. You remember they were proclaiming peace, peace when there was no peace. Jeremiah, according to the Spirit of God, knew what was going on in the temple, what was going on in the king's house. He knew what was going on in the hearts of the people. God sees this, and he brings about his disciplining hand. He sees the attractions and distractions that not only got their attention, but get our attention, and he will not endure it. Discipline will happen according to God's purposes because his work will not go undone. Here's a wonderful promise. He'll finish the work he started in you, believer, right? What does that mean when you're living in rebellion? It's not going to be so pleasant in those seasons. That's when we get to know that God cares. He cares about our holiness he will finish the work started in you church I want to give you the theme today a theme that we began the book with God's covenant carries consequences that bring a remedy for the good of the remnant God's covenant carries consequences that bring a remedy for the good of the remnant Along the way, speaking to the matter of the remnant, along the way, we've seen many fall away to destruction, proving that they faltered at the point of saving faith. In our lives, we've seen those who've encountered the judgment of God, and then in response to it, they set their face against him. As we learned a few chapters ago, they set their face toward Egypt. But believers, saints, we know that for those who believe, there is a completely glorious conclusion to the discipline of God. It's that we will look like Christ. It's that we will be transformed. We will be fully sanctified. We will be glorified on that last day. In fact, it is the, the sanctifying work of God continues among his people today. We can look around just in our own nation at the way that God's people are fracturing and dividing, giving undue attention to things that are not gospel, rebelliously trusting in politics, rebelliously living in fear, idolizing the same things the world idolizes, forsaking the fellowship, looking out for number one Folks, those who claim Christ will not escape or evade God's discipline. And for those that seem to somehow miss God's discipline, God have mercy on your soul. But if you know that you're an object of his covenant love, then today I want you to be prepared for the tests that come with God's discipline. So I think this chapter two reminds us of four tests, if we can put it in those terms, four tests that come with God's discipline. So let's begin. Long introduction. Apologies. Number one, the test of fleshly resistance. Let's read verses one through 11. Chapter 52 and verse one. Zedekiah was 
21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of king, king of, Zedekiah, of king Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. All the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. The Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The kings of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered the officials, all the officials of Judah at Riblah, who put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. These verses should sound familiar to you. Many of these verses are very similar to Jeremiah 39. And so we got a little foretaste, you remember, in Jeremiah 39. And now we get a remembrance of the event that took place when Jerusalem was finally overtaken in 587, 586 B.C. And we get to Zedekiah in just a moment, but... Let's start right at our front door to go to our point. The test of fleshly resistance. Before we get to Zedekiah, I want you to know that that, that resistance resides within each one of us. It's resistance from self. What got Zedekiah in trouble was his refusal to submit to the Lord's discipline. And he seemed willing all these years. He worked with Babylon. Okay, we, we, you know, they were, many commentators considered him to be like just the puppet of Nebuchadnezzar. But when it came down to it, he did not want to submit to them. God had said, they're coming in, you submit to their rule, and you will be preserved because this is what I have appointed to happen. Zedekiah couldn't accept that. I will not be disciplined by God. I will not surrender to another king. Y'all know what that's like. We sort of operate. We, 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 we work with, with what God wants to do long enough, but when it comes down to it, we refuse to surrender. We start to reason in our own heart. You remember that heart, Jeremiah 17, 9, that's wicked, desperately wicked above all things. Who can trust it? Don't trust your heart, believers. You trust your heart. You're going to start deceiving yourself about your own sin, about your standing with God, about what his discipline will do. And so even when you know that the discipline's for your good, you don't want it. That's uncomfortable. I don't like that. It's painful. And so we try to sidestep God's discipline. You try to reason your way out of it. You 
need to come to grips with the fact that your heart cannot be trusted and that surrender to the Lord is best for you. It's that test of fleshly resistance. How many of y'all, when, when God says, Who, who's ready for some discipline? Oh, yeah, you have me. Now, we want to, maybe, maybe them over there, maybe the rest of these folks, but God, I'm good where I am. I don't want to undergo this kind of stuff. It's that resistance. It's that resistance we're talking about. Resistance from self, but it's also resistance from others. Now, get this. It's not resistance against you. It's resistance against God. Think about the way that Zedekiah's actions affected the entire nation of Judah, the entire city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's someone else's rebellion that affects us. If you're a poor citizen of Jerusalem and you're ready for surrender, you're ready for whatever the Lord has for you, and you see Zedekiah's decisions are bringing destruction your way, you don't get to somehow claim, hey, well, I didn't like his decision, so I get a free pass from the discipline, right? Well, sometimes other folks' decisions affect us. You know this as a citizen of our country. The decisions of leaders affect us. You know that as a member of a church, hopefully. You know that the decisions of leaders affect us. You know that because you're in a family, you have family members, and you have people in authority. You know, when, you're, when your dad, when the husband, when the father is making bad decisions, it affects us. And the response is not, well, Zedekiah's fault. I'm off the hook. No, there is always work to be done. And so in this exile, the question is, not will Zedekiah get right with God, but will I? Well, I make sure that I'm right with God. We're going to look down at the end today at Jehoiakim. This is the son of Jehoiakim. And he reigned for three months when he was a teenager. You know how long he spent in prison and in exile? 37 years. You might think, well, well, that's not fair. Maybe it's not. But you know what? That 37 years got him exactly where God wanted him to be, according to God's good purpose. Sometimes it's the decisions of others. There's consequences for others' resistance to God. Zedekiah certainly bears the consequences of his actions, but his actions affect a whole nation of people. Do not believe the lie that there are victimless sins. Oh, well, my sins only affected me. No, you have believed a lie of the enemy. Think about the way that your fellowship with one another is diminished when sin becomes a part of your life. When you give a place to sin, when you bow down at the altar of whatever it is, think about the way that all the people around you, these people right now that you are looking at, think about the way that they are stripped of the blessing of your ministry when you give yourself to sin. There's so many ways this works out. As we said, husbands, you have wives, fathers, children, mothers, 
Your sin affects the people around you. Leaders, you have followers. Young saints, you may say, nobody's looking up to me. You know what? There's always somebody looking up to you. And there's always that that one person that's going to see what you are doing, your friends especially, and your decisions now will dictate future relationships. Don't think that there are victimless sins. It is the test of fleshly resistance. The test we see in Zedekiah and so many. Will you be able to pass that test? Secondly, the test of dismantled faith. Verses 12 through 23. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. All the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had, des- who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. You may recall us talking about this before. Verse 17, And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots and the shovels, the, the snuffers and the basins and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in temple service. Also, the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and the pots with the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bulls that were under the sea, and the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these things was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of one pillar was eighteen cubits, its circumference was twelve cubits, and its thickness was four fingers, and it was hollow. On it was, cap, was a capital of bronze. The height of one capital was five cubits. A network in, of, excuse me, a network and pomegranates all of bronze were around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with pomegranates. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates were 100 upon the network all around. All this to describe the various things that people would see inside the temple. You see what's happening. All the furnishings, all the articles are being taken away, and the temple itself is destroyed. You know, somewhere along the way, the lines between the worship of God and the means of worship get mixed up. We start to think that the things that assist us in worship are actually essential for worship. 
We slowly begin to simply preserve property or maintain worship rather than focusing on authentic worship and thriving in it. We start to idolize the things that God blessed us with, objects used to strengthen our faith, but not become objects of our faith. So God observed the rapid decline of the faith in the generations prior to the Babylonian exile. They conveniently lost the book of the law. When it was discovered, they rejected it outright. You remember Jehoiakim sliced it off page by page and burned it. So God dismantles the things that they thought were essential to knowing him and to worshiping him. They get stripped of their place of worship, among other things, like their homes. Their place of worship, verses 12 through 16, it covers the destruction of the temple. God showed them in the destruction of the temple that faith doesn't depend on a worship space. You know, I'm convinced that there are a large number of Christians in our Western society That if the church building were to be destroyed any given day, the following Sunday, they say, well, now we can't worship. I'm not going to gather with the saints. We don't have our place of worship. Let me remind you folks that as God would have it, this is not the sanctuary. Christ is. This is not the altar. Christ is. Do you understand that where the church is, the church exists? Not because of a building, not because of bricks and mortar, but the people of God, when they gather for the purpose of worshiping God, under the preaching of the gospel, that church continues to exist and it will exist according to God's purposes. For some, faith is so building-centered that without a building, they just don't know what to do. It's almost like if we could take our attention off of a space, much like they would have in this day, well, we need the temple because that's how we know God blessed us. We need the temple because that's how we worship. But it's almost like if we could be stripped of that thing because we put so much faith in that thing, we would start to understand the things that were actually important, like gospel preaching and disciple making. You and I both know we, we have been around the church long enough. We discover quickly that possessions in the life of the church become a source of much, much hindrance to gospel progress. We can't allow that. They allowed that. They were stripped of their place of worship. With the building gone, the people scattered rather than gathered. I'll put it in these terms. If your family's house was under fire from an enemy... What would you do? If somebody sought to destroy your house, what would you do? If you're like me, you're going to gather your spouse, your children, whatever extended relatives you got, you're going to hold them as close as you possibly can, and you're going to make sure that you're together going forward. In your own family, if you were under attack, it would only strengthen your resolve to be unified. Why is it not like that for so many in the church? 
Oh, we're under attack. I'm giving up. Godspeed. Y'all do what you need to do. I got to go preserve myself. No. A family is going to come together. You're going to work toward the goal that you know God has in mind for you. But do you, do you view that church, the church that way? Do you view the church that way? When your faith is, is dismantled by the things that you can touch and hold and see, the things that you can gather in, when God strips those things away, are you going to show your continued faith in God? So as the place was stripped of them, the articles, they were carried off. Can you imagine the, the scene of watching all the things that were used in the worship of God being melted down and carried off to a foreign land to be used for who knows what? You might be tempted to think in that moment that this can't be from God. God would never allow this to happen. But believer, your faith is not in the articles of worship. Our, our chairs can be taken from us. Our air conditioner can be taken from us. Somebody can come carry off the piano, the pulpit. Is that going to change anything about us? It sure better not. Write comments on these verses. Never were four words more fully realized. Think about what Jeremiah's ministry was. Uprooted, torn down, destroyed, overthrown. God has a way of dismantling our faith when it comes, when it becomes muddled by worldly pursuits and cares. I just wonder, maybe, is there something that you're going through right now that you can say, it seems like God is just dismantling things in front of me, and it's hard for me. It's challenging me. Can you pass the test of this dismantled faith? Those who had faith rightly placed in the coming Messiah, they proved their faith to be real. The third test, 24 through 30, the test of life in exile. His last two points, very brief. Verse 24, and the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city, he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war. Seven men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land. Sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them, brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down, put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the number of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year, Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive from Jerusalem, 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Judeans, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. These... Uh, these verses 
are also found if you're interested in 2 Kings 23 and 24. Uh, the numbers here seem to reflect uh, male, adult males, as the number in 2 Kings reflects a much larger number, probably the total number of persons. The test here, the life of exile. In summary, application of really the whole book. Have you accepted the test of living in exile? As we've uncovered, and I'm reminding you now, earth is not your home. The United States is not your lasting nation. So the questions I would ask you, are you Are you on that Jeremiah 29 view of your life to build houses, live in them, to plant seeds and eat the produce, to give your children in marriage, to thrive? Not as some way of being simply an alternative, but so that we may impact the world with the peace that comes from God? Are we leveraging what God has given us here and now for Christ's kingdom? Are we stewarding well all that God has under our care? Are we laboring for the good of the city that is to come as well as the city that we're in right now? God's got you in the land of exile. Realize it. He's got you in the land of exile exile to make you ready for the land of promise he's got you where you can pass the test of faithfulness to him even when everything seems to be against you life in exile is his chosen method of making you holy how are you dealing with that tension believers we're already a part of christ's kingdom But his kingdom has not yet come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you recognize this test of life in exile? A final test. It's the test of enduring faith, 31 to 34. And here's where we get one of those glimpses of future glory, restoration. In the 37th year, of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, until the day of his death, as long as he lived. Jehoiakim. As I mentioned before, this is a guy who stumbled upon the reign of Judah as a teenager. He reigned for three months And then guess what, Jehoiakim, you get to be in jail for 37 years. He endured as a picture of faith's reward. We don't know a lot about him. We don't know 
exactly his spiritual state. What we know from this text right here is that he is presented as a picture of the redeemed, the remnant. He's presented as the picture of the one who maintained faith, who endured all along the way. And then finally, when the time came, God showed him grace at the hands of this king. Now his name, Evil Merodach, that doesn't mean he's evil. That's just his name, okay? That's just how it transliterates into English. So this guy comes on the scene. I'm the king now. A lot of times when people would take over a reign, they would do some kind act like this. And in this case, it was setting free Jehoiakim. And it's not just, hey, we're going to set you free. You go live your life. Did y'all read? Did y'all read what we just read? He spoke kindly to him. Gave him a seat above other kings. And you know what Jehoiakim did? He put off his prison garments and he dined regularly at the king's table. He was sustained. All of his needs were met. I hope you see the grace of God evident toward the people of God in exile. When it comes to the end, we're going to be graciously set free. The words there in the Hebrew literally lifted up the head. He lifted up the head of Jehoiakim. He spoke kindly to him. You know, our God in heaven speaks kindly to his people. He woos his people. He speaks to them in ways in wilderness that show his faithfulness. He speaks kindly to us through his word. In his, in his purposes, just as Jehoiakim was able to sit above the kings of Babylon, we are going to be exalted along with Christ as co-heirs. We inherit the nations purchased by Christ with Christ. He speaks kindly to us. He seats us above Kings, And then, what's our response? We put off the old garments. I hope you're getting some of that old man, the natural man that God has called us in our salvation. Take off the garments. You're not in prison anymore. Why do you dress like you're still in your sin, spiritually speaking? Why do you, why do you put on the clothes of, of the old flesh he put on new clothes, and in our case, it is the righteous raiment of Jesus Christ. And then maybe the best of all, he dines at the king's table. He dines at the king's table. Those of us who are not worthy, who have come to faith in Jesus, recognizing there's nothing we could do to make our place at that table, we realize that he made it for us. And we have an invitation from God to dine at his table through faith in Christ. God's work and discipline produces good outcomes for the remnant. Well, you recognize maybe you're in a season of exile 
maybe in bigger ways. Just living in a land of exile is really challenging you. Maybe there are various ways that the Lord is dismantling your faith right now. Maybe he has done it. My question is, will you pass the test? Will you continue to hold fast to Jesus as he holds fast to you? One day we'll dine at the table. A table that's set for the whole redeemed remnant. And we'll think back not upon all the things that we did that were so good and righteous. We'll think back upon the one act that was carried out at Calvary. Where the Lord Jesus laid down his life only to take it up again in victory. All for our redemption. To wrap up the series, A Righteous Remnant, I want to remind you again, we're not the remnant because we've somehow done righteous things. We're the remnant because we've been made righteous through Jesus' blood. Believe on him. Believe on him and be a beneficiary of that new covenant that Jeremiah tells us about and that Jesus came to initiate in his blood. As we respond this morning, I'm going to pray in just a moment, as we normally do. I want to also let you know that today and in the future, um, myself and Kyle, Pastor Kyle, when he's here, they're out of town, will be more available to you as you respond. If you need to counsel with us, then We'd be glad to pray for you, talk to you. If responding to God's word is simply meditating upon the truth of God's word, then do it. If it's responding by continuing to sing praises to Jesus, then do it. You are welcome to do it. But just know that in our time of response, we are here to minister to you. Josh, come and lead us. Let's pray. Father, we are rejoicing at the wonderful conclusions of your word, conclusions you've pointed us to in the life of Jehoiakim, the beauty of Jesus, his glory, the grace given through him, the freedom we have. For those that may not know this freedom, Father, we pray that there would be repentance for the first time in faith, saving faith in Jesus. For those that have been maybe harboring some sin, giving room to some rebellion, we pray, Father, that you would bring repentance, renewal, and restoration. For all of us, Father, we want to look like Jesus. We pray that today, as we respond to your word, you would make us more like him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In response, we're going to take a moment to give you time to meditate, and then we'll start to sing together, and we will at that time take up our offering.
as we continue responding.